good to see everybody this morning. I will do my best to be loud and energetic so that we all stay awake on this beautiful time change Sunday. Um, but just in case I, I don't succeed, I have a water gun and I will squirt you. Let's go. Uh, welcome to Katusa First. We like to work our way through a book of the Bible at a time so we can't skip the hard stuff. We are in uh, the section of Acts chapter 2, around verse 42 is where we'll start today. But we'll do something a little bit different uh, this week, not next week, and then the following two weeks. We are going to be looking at something that helps us organize how we can become an Acts kind of church. Now, I don't think we'll become an Acts 2 church because they had the apostles doing supernatural things, and there are no new apostles anymore, not in the sense that we see here in the New Testament. Apostle is a word that means one who is sent. So a missionary could be considered a little a apostle, but the capital A apostle, somebody who saw the resurrected Jesus and did miracles like we see in Acts 2, those do not exist anymore. And one of the reasons, I don't know if you know, that the elders went on a retreat a while ago, and that was to continue to work on what is the DNA of this church? What is it that we are about, and how do we communicate that with the rest of the body about here's the things that are important to us as a church? Now, all churches are going to have the same thing that are important. Like, we love Jesus, we want to reach lost people, we want to disciple people. So all churches have the same mission, right? From Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we have like our own personality, and we want to kind of communicate in a way that is helpful for everybody to understand how is it that we are to minister to the community around us. Uh, to kind of help us get an idea, Brent, would you put up the uh, graph I have this morning? There we go. So this is an optical illusion where it appears that the two circles are the same size, but actually one is much larger than the other. So raise your hand if you think the red one is the larger one. How many of you think the blue one is the larger one? Okay, you're all wrong. I lied. They're exactly the same size. How many of you guys knew that? Some of you, yeah. We're like, we've been to your church before, Caleb, yeah, right? It's too early. But see how quickly, just by saying one is larger than the other, some of you go, you know what? I do think this one's larger than the other. And just by somebody on a stage saying something authoritatively, we can let go of what our natural instinct is, is to say they're both the same size. And we do this in our culture all the time. There are cultural truths that are said with authority that go against even your natural instincts that so many people believe just because somebody said it. And one of the things that I see happening here in Acts is like if I was to take those two circles and like cut them out and put them one on top of the other, then even if you had been raised to believe from a young child, the blue circle is larger than the red. Can you imagine? If somebody in their 
in their home, they had the two circles pinned up on the fridge. And the entire life of the child, they were told, this is an optical illusion, the blue one is actually bigger than the red. And they were indoctrinated with that from the time that they were born until finally somebody came over, cut it out, put them on top of each other to prove they are actually the, both the same size. It would be mind-shattering to destroy the paradigm that they had grown up in. This is what Christ does. He destroys the paradigm that we have been brought up with, and there are certain lies that we have been told, and the gospel and Jesus reshape us to the real truth of who and how and what we were meant to be. So when we read Acts, uh, let's just, Acts 2 verse 42, let's just start there. When you got it, say, I got it. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of breaking bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, for them, this is a radical new culture. All of a sudden, they are now having all things in common with one another. They're constantly meeting in the temple, but they are not just doing their basic temple routine. They are now praising Jesus Christ as Yahweh, God of God, Lord of Lords. There's been an entire cultural shift in their life, and something very different is happening. But it's only different in the sense that the lies that they had believed before are disappearing, and the truth is emerging. It's new to them, but it's not new. If you read Genesis 1, you get the foundations of Acts 2. So in Genesis, in the garden, they have all things in common. They're in the presence of God. They're, they're, you know, they're together. And Acts 2 is the fallen world's version of Genesis 1. It is the beginning of God reclaiming his kingdom for himself with his people, living as though God really is king. We talked about this last week. It's the theocracy where God's way rules. So of course they can give their money away and they can uh, open their homes to other people because it's not their money and it's not their homes. Everything belongs to the Lord. And they truly live that way. And we look at this and we go, oh, man, I would love to live in a sense of awe of the things of God. Well, that's how you were designed to live. They're just things that need to be taken away. Now, as we read Acts chapter 2, those verses, I don't know if you noticed anything. How often is food mentioned? In fact, it's the most common thing mentioned in those passages. They broke bread, they broke bread, and then they ate food together with glad hearts. So three times you have the mentioning of meals. It's the first Baptist meeting. We get together and we eat. And there's three tables in Scripture, and this has been something that's been helpful for me to have in my mind to help 
how I organize my life. There's three tables, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's the table of the home. Where does most of the ministry happen in the New Testament? Does it happen in the church? There's, there's two main places where ministry happens. On the road, which was the place of business, right? You would go and you would walk down a road and there would be shops and there would be the, the, uh, the leather tanner, there would be the blacksmith, there would be the goat herder, whatever it was, they would come and on the road is where all the business would be. So you will find Jesus on the road. He's in the place of business doing ministry where we tend to think most ministry happens in the church. Or he goes into home. Zacchaeus, can I come and eat at your house? That's a very personal question to invite yourself over to somebody's home. I'm just going to invite myself over for lunch tomorrow. Uninvited, just show up. And you're like, but I'm not ready yet. I don't have things in order. I haven't cleaned the house. No, I'm going to see who you really are. When my dad was a youth minister, uh, he had been a youth minister for many years. So when I became a youth pastor, I said, what is the best advice you can give me? He said, go and visit them in their home. He says, you'll learn more about who they are spending 10 minutes in their home than you will an hour outside at church. He says, you'll really get to know who they actually are. And that was good advice. Why? Because the home is your most personal place. So there's the table of the home. There's the table of the Lord where we gather together, and then there's the supper of the Lamb. The supper of the Lamb is spoken of in Revelations, where Jesus has a big banquet for us. And so just an understanding of these three tables helps me organize my life, and it's one of the ways that we organize this church. Whether I preached on these three tables or not, it would still be one of the ways that we make decisions. When we do an event is this feeding the table of the home? Is this encouraging and enabling you to be a minister in your home? Is this feed the table of the lamb? Is this a, a, where we invite people to church on a Sunday so they can hear the gospel, all with the goal that we can be together at the supper of the lamb? When Christ comes back or we leave this earth, I want to be surrounded by the loved ones that I made here. I want to make sure everybody I know gets a chance to hear the gospel. So we'll start with the table of the home. Uh, Leviticus 23 talks about seven meals. If you haven't noticed, God makes a lot out of food, right? There's, food is a constant theme throughout Scripture. And even when he has the nation of Israel, he gives them feasts to eat, right? There's, there's seven feasts. Here they are. There's the Sabbath, the Passover, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths. And what do they do during feasts? It's just a regular part of the rhythm where they gather around the meal and they make their meal not just about food, not just about friendships, but about their relationship with God. Now, Romans, interesting enough, they had feasts too. And their feasts actually lasted longer than ours. Do you know that? So Romans, they would get together and they would have feasts, but their feasts were to distract the gods. So they would have big, long parties. They would have total ragers for days. And the goal was, is to keep the gods preoccupied with the party that they wouldn't get involved and start meddling with their life. Maybe if we distract the gods, they won't care about the things, the sinful things that we've done. They won't be mad at us. So Rome had parties to keep the gods away 
God gave his people feast to invite him in. When we gather at the table, when we say a prayer, we're inviting God into the home, right? Now, he's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere anyways. But it's an intentional act to allow him in. Now, we as Christians don't do feasts like they did in the Old Testament. And sometimes that's to our detriment. We don't even spend a lot of time around the table anymore, right? I, I remember watching a documentary on the invention of cereal. And cereal was originally for like hospital patients where they had too many patients, they couldn't afford to feed them, so they just threw a bunch of grains in there and poured some milk and said, there you go. But all of a sudden they started adding sugar and it became really popular, right? And so now we don't have breakfast around the table. It's just, here's a bowl of sugar. Hurry up, you got school. Get out the door. Kids come home. Parents are both working. We don't have time to cook dinner. We're just going to microwave this. Here, just sit in front of the TV and watch TV. And that's your meal. And we've lost a lot of that time that we would spend around the table. But when you lose the table, you lose the deeper conversations that families should have. We try really hard to make sure that my wife and my kids, we sit around the table at least four nights a week. I think we tend to do a little bit better than that. Almost every night that we're home for dinner, even if we stopped and got fast food, we try to sit at the table. Because that's one of the few chance I get to have a deeper conversation with my kids. I ask them about, how was school? Fine, right? That's the answer I get. To them, that's a deep conversation. But we've lost the table Jordan Peterson, um, but when it comes to Acts, we see this healthy community, and can I be so bold to state it, the healthy community didn't start at the church, the healthy community started at the home. Jordan Peterson wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life, and in it the first rule is just clean your room. Just clean your room. Like, we all want to achieve these big things, and we want to have a church that's healthy and strong. The, the healthy, strong church doesn't start what we do on Sunday morning. It starts what you do on your home, in your house, with your family. That is your first and primary place of discipleship and evangelism. 1 Timothy 3. Let's, let's look at a, a few verses here that kind of build the case for this. I know this is different than normal where we just stay in one spot. We only have a few verses we're going to look at. But 1 Timothy chapter 3. These are the qualifications for anybody who's going to be in a position of church leadership, right? An overseer, an elder. But it says it's something that it's good to aspire to. And... If anything, an elder should just be a role model for what you are trying to do in your home. An elder is not somebody who is unique and different and something that you can't obtain. These are guidelines that we should aspire to. And I want you to notice what some of the primary things that are necessary in order for them to qualify to be an elder. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, 
not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you would say, where does church leadership start? In the home. It has to start in the home. One of the qualifications for somebody who's going to be a minister of God's church, they have to be a minister in their home first. And I would say, if you want to have a healthy Christian life, it doesn't start with what you do on Sunday. It starts in the home. And now that's difficult though, right? Because children have their own free will. And as a father, I find it really hard. Men, you probably find it hard as well. I want my kids to be disciplined, so I want to be strict. But if I'm too strict, then it goes towards rebellion. And so, but I also want my kids to know that I'm not just the mean guy with the belt, that I also am a loving father, so I want to be soft. So I want to encourage them and embrace them and love them and hold them and, and, and communicate truths into their life. How do I balance being soft and hard at the same time? How, how do I be a strict father and a gentle father at the same time? You know, I was thinking about this. It's an, isn't it incredible how God is so good at disciplining us? Because guess what? You're just as stubborn and hard-headed as your kids are. <laughs> All I have found about adults, after years of ministry, years of counseling, here's what I've learned. Adults are just better at hiding it than kids are. We're just as stubborn, just as hard-headed, but we're just better at like negotiating with ourselves. Oh, I'm not really what they say they are. I'm this, and I'm this for this reason, and this reason, this reason, right? We are great at justifying. Kids just don't have the vocabulary or intelligence to justify as well as adults do. So we justify our failures and just say, well, this is the way that my dad did it, or this or that. Guys, it's hard. But there's a reason we're really trying to encourage you guys to come to a men's conference. We're having men's breakfast. We're trying to put together men's event. Because you're the minister of your home. We don't want just a lot of good, strong, godly men in the church. We want ministers of their home. If your kids hear the gospel on Sunday from me and that's it, then I'm not doing my job well. You are the primary teacher of who God is in the home. Husbands and wives, you guys are the primary teachers of who God is in the home. So what, when it comes to structuring our homes, what does that look like? What, what, let me give you three things, and, and I think you can find most of these in Acts. When it comes to our homes, I want a godly structure, godly protection, and godly ministry. Now, when I say godly structure... I'm not talking about the roles of men and the roles of women. Sometimes I think we get bogged down in that. I think sometimes churches can get really invested in like, this is the role of men and this is the role of women. And though that's really important, it's really important to me to understand, but it's also a good reminder that Scripture says the two become one flesh. So no matter what structure you think looks like in your home, you better be a team. There better be a partnership 
full of humility, seeking the wisdom of God and how you lead your family. When I talk about godly structure, what I'm talking about is intentionality. Just being intentional with your family. Using the time that you have given to make sure that you are pointing them towards Christ. What is it every parent whose kids have gone off and left to college or grandparent tells a new family? I hear it all the time. They grow up so fast. Oh, I know this stage is rough, but they grow up so fast. Grandparents, do they grow up really fast? Like that, don't they? And I see it every now and then. I'll look over at my oldest son, Titus, and I'm like, what? How? He were, and now you're, I don't even know. It. What happened to the in-between? How did my little boy get so big? Time goes by fast. And if you think, I'll disciple them more when they're a teenager. I'll pour into them more when they're a little bit older. That's when I'll lay the foundation. When they're 12, 13, they're too young. They don't understand it now. You're missing golden opportunities to lay the foundation of truth of who God is in your kids' lives. Grandparents, my dad will talk about this on Wednesday night here in a little bit. Parents tend to be law by nature, so the Bible has law and grace, right? Parents, when you have little kids, you spend a lot of time being law. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Grandparents are grace. You need both. What the trouble is, is when you have parents who are trying to be grace and law, or just grace, then you get wild kids with no boundaries because you're just trying to be grace to them because we, we, we need grandparents. My grandmother would give me ice cream for breakfast. Godliest woman I ever met, right? And my dad would be furious. He got up one morning, he goes, what are you giving these kids? They can't have ice cream for breakfast. That's not healthy for them. They're going to be acting crazy all day. He's going all through the law. You know what my grandma did? You hush your mouth. Because <laughs> that was his mom. She could say that. I can't say that, but he could, she could say that. I see these kids only a few times a year, and they can eat whatever they want in my house, <laughs> right? Ah, the grace was overflowing. I loved Grandma. Right? Yeah, you were just mad because he didn't get any. But grace and law need to be intentional in the home. If you unintentionally discipline your kids, that there's no rhyme or reason to it, you're not laying a strong godly foundation now i struggle just as much as a parent as anybody else right nobody knows what they're doing we're all trying to figure this out as we go along right that's why a community of other parents are really helpful but i'm trying to learn when my kids say well why can't i do that cohen's not here so i can tell this story wednesday a little girl bit him i turn around and i see him just just launch the girl right just shove her to the ground and i said cohen remember we don't hit girls you can't do that he goes but why not they're the ones that are mean to me they're the meanest why can't i hit him so then we get to talk about godly rules about how god has made you tough to be the protector of your home that your bones will be stronger your fist will be bigger your forehead will be denser right it's 
hard-headed is a biblical concept. God has made you and built you differently so that you can be the protector of your family and you can't use those gifts for violence against those who are not built the same way as you are. So it's not just discipline. It's discipline with a biblical foundation of here's how God has made you and it will be better for you in the long run if you would learn that. So we need a godly structure. We need godly protection. Do you know God gave the Israelites 613 laws? And when you hear that, that sounds awful, doesn't it? You're like, 613 rules to live by? Now, we use the word laws, but in the Old Testament, it's not necessarily the word that laws might not be the best translation. It, it means word as kind of like word of wisdom, but with a deeper meaning. It's not just good advice. It's like you really need to listen to this advice. But we don't have a good word in English to translate it, so we use the word law. But when we hear about, hey, I'm going to get up here and read the law, that sounds sad. No one would like it. But how did they receive this information? How did the Israelites, when they heard this news about God is actually speaking and giving us guidance on how to live, how did they respond? Well, David writes a Psalms, one of the longest Psalms, Psalms 119, that tells us how they responded to the word that God was given. This is what he says. I'm just going to read a little bit of Psalms 119. This is verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your words. How do they respond to the law being given? They would say, it is more valuable than anything, any riches I could ever imagine. As he goes on, he talks about how beautiful and wonderful and caring it is. God's guidance is a sense of protection for his people. If your kids play in the street, you go out and you watch to make sure that they're safe, that they know when a car is coming. That's not obtrusive and overbearing law giving. That's a loving parent trying to guide their kids. So at the table of the home, we have structure. There's intentionality, but there's also protection. Parents, you need to be careful of what you allow your kids to see and hear. It, they're too young for TikTok. Adults, you're too young for TikTok. You don't need some of that stuff. There is clear science on how these sayings have been affecting the social interaction between people. The, the, one of the clear studies was the more time spent on social media, the higher level of depression. There is a very, very clear correlation between time on social media and levels of depression. And the younger generation that spends more time on social media than any other generation, of course, because it's designed for them, 
is also the most anxious and depressed generation. Though it is unpopular opinion, protect your kids. Even if it comes to the movies that you watch at your home, we need to maybe be a little bit more intentional. The last one, we need a godly mission. Notice in Acts, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Is that something that you could say about your home? That your home is devoted. What is your home devoted to? What is your home devoted to? Sports? Video games? Entertainment? Or can your home say the same thing that they said about this, this group? We call it a church, but it's really just a community. It's a small community of people meeting together in their homes and sometimes in the temple, but for the most part in their homes, just having their neighbors over. And all of them were devoted together in their homes to the apostles' teachings. So we devote ourselves to our kids. We devote ourselves to our jobs. We devote ourselves to our kids' sports. But how much time are we spent devoted to the apostles' teaching, to God's word in our home? You need a godly mission for your home. You need a godly mission. This is Luke 14, 12, 12 through 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Your, the table of your home is your first mission field. It's a mission field. Jesus says, it's nice to invite your neighbors over. And that's good, and I encourage you to do that. Invite your neighbors over for a meal. We used to have back porches. Uh, we used to have front porches, right? And you saw your neighbors, and everybody would be out on their front porch. And as we became a less social culture, it moved to the back. So you could have your privacy and not have to talk to anybody. Isn't that interesting? How cultures changed? We went from front porch to back porch. Because we don't want those interactions. I'm not exactly sure what causes that. But we're isolating ourselves more and more. And so one of the things that I want this church to be known for, that my prayer is, is that we become a front porch kind of church. Even if you don't have a front porch. It just means you are a welcoming person who invites other people over. Now, here's what we get from what Jesus was saying. He's like, look, anybody can invite their best friend over or their good friends that live next door because guess what? They're going to invite them over later. Like, hey, I'll cook this week, you do that week. That's, that's good, and that's being hospitable, but is that a ministry? It, it can be if they don't know Jesus Christ. But he's specifically here, he's like, look for the people that nobody else would ever invite over. Look for the people who don't get invited to meals or barbecues or luncheons or just to come over and have a game night. Look for those people, the, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, those who have fallen through the cracks. Open your home up to them. Begin to invest your life in the people that nobody else is investing in. What would that look like if everybody here 
brought somebody to church that they hadn't been investing in that nobody else ever gave the time of day. And then the people in the church recognized that there was a new person, so they started investing in that person. And all of a sudden, the person that the whole world has told that you're basically insignificant and forgettable is being noticed, loved, and cared for by not just a neighbor, but an entire community. When we have that kind of mission mindset in our home, that's how we start to move towards being in Acts chapter 2 church. See, I'm supposed to support the ministry that you're doing at home. And it's good. We're going to have mission trips and things like that planned this year that you can go on and experience this for maybe for the first time. But I feel like I succeed in my job. Is if you view your home and your house as your primary ministry. Now, your job is great. It's how you provide for your family. But the time that you spend with them around the table investing. And you say, well, I don't have kids anymore. Guess what? There are a lot of kids who don't have grandparents. I lost all my grandparents when I was quite young. Quite young. My dad, who was trying to be intentional and structure it, made a deal with a lady by the name of Lucille. Lucille's children had moved far away. He said, I will come over and fix and take care of anything that you need taken care of if you'll do me one favor. She says, what's that? Would you be the grandmother to my children? We didn't have any grandparents. We had lost them all. My dad understood how important it was to have grandparents in the kid's life. So though she was never flesh and blood, she was grandmother to me. And she gave me more grace than anybody I ever met in my life. No matter what I did, it was the greatest thing she had ever seen in her life. I, I could do it. And then whenever um, she sat on her TV remote all the time, <laughs> it would sit in a recliner and she would sit on it. And when she would do that, it would change the input buttons. You know how they have input one, two, and three? Well, she was old enough, she didn't know how any of that worked. She had no idea how any of this stuff worked. She was used to the TV, walked up and turned the knob until my dad got her a new TV. And then she was like, well, I don't know what anything to do with it. So my dad would leave and drive all the way to her house so he could get the remote, press TV, power, and hand it to her. And this happened on a weekly basis. We tried writing instructions down. We tried explaining to her. Didn't, didn't make a lick of difference. No glue. So he would get the phone call. He would drive over there. He would do the remote for her so that she could watch her show in the evening. And you say, well, that's crazy. No, that's how important grandparents are in a kid's life. That's how important. If, if you... Don't have something like that. We have a lot of seasoned adults here who are looking for somebody to invest in. And I guarantee you they'd be more than glad to love on your kid. Wouldn't that be incredible? Because we're a community. And community doesn't start what we do here on Sunday. Community starts at your home. Being intentional. Giving them the teachings of the apostle to be protection from their sinfulness, and have an intentional ministry in your home. I hope that makes sense.
Um, my prayer is, is that we would all begin to view our home as the first church you go to. That, that's your, your primary community, right? That's, that's where you start, and that's the hardest one, because those are the ones that know you the best, right? You can come to church and fake it. Hey, brother, bless you. Doing great. Praise the Lord. And your wife is like, you're not doing great. You're miserable right now, and I know the truth, right? So it's much harder to do it at home, but that's where the real success is. If, if you can structure your home around God, church is a natural byproduct. A healthy church naturally flows out of that. So you say, how do you grow a healthy church? By helping families be healthy. So we start, the mission of the church is the table of the home. Not the sanctuary, not our youth program, not our children's ministry. All those things are to help the table of the home. Amen? Let me pray. Here's our time of response. If you're struggling with your home ministry, welcome to the club. Everybody is. But there are people here who will take their time to invest in you to help you grow. And we will walk through the dark parts, the, the hard parts. We will walk with you hand in hand to make sure that you can be the healthiest version, healthiest husband, healthiest wife that you can be.